Hello, hello, and welcome to Football Outsiders, the takeaway holiday edition. We break down hottest takes around the league, round them up from around the NFL media landscape, put them on the meter, figure out just how spicy they are. Jacksonville Jaguars take care of business against the New York Jets, who've now lost four straight. I'd say it's been a long time since they've done that, but they started 0-13 last year, so this team's pretty familiar with that sensation. 19-3 final. We get a taste of Chris Streveler in the game, coming in for Zach Wilson. There's a lot of defending going on from Robert Sala, saying, oh, it wasn't our intention to bench Zach Wilson. Went with Chris Trevler to get the run game up, but hey, he did well, so we kept him in. He said, we haven't seen the last of Zach Wilson, which sounds like a threat. (laughs) But long story short, Zach Wilson is the center of our Thursday takeaway. Our Thursday night football takeaway comes from former FO writer, current member of Yahoo Sports, Charles McDonald. Four words on Twitter who dropped this doozy of a tweet saying that Zach Wilson is easily one of the worst draft picks in this century of football, meaning since 2000. Goes into a deeper explanation when someone just responded, uh, pick it, pick it, pick it, pick it, pick it, pick it, pick it. I'm not going to read it all, but... Zach was second overall in a draft that featured a Pro Bowl rookie tight end, maybe the best rookie wide receiver we've seen, two Pro Bowl talents at cornerback, Jalen Waddell, Justin Fields, Panay Sewell, Rayshon Slater, and Micah Parsons. It is unconsciously bad. Jackson. Yikes. That is, that is an indictment of the highest order. Put it on the meter. Zach Wilson is one of the worst draft picks of the 21st century. Well, that's the thing is it's an indictment, but it's got all the evidence behind it that you just mentioned. And also this is, you know, not, not to call this a pet peeve, but I cannot put it that high on the take meter. When you just say one of, if you were to say he is the worst, I'd, I'd consider going in the hot territory, but one of, are we talking about a list of three, a list of five, a list of 12? Come on, Charles, let's get really specific here. So I'm going to go, I'm probably just going to go lukewarm, like right in the middle, because I don't have like a strong stance on whether it's a hot take, cold take, etc. But he's right. This is already panning out to be one of the worst draft picks of my lifetime, of really anybody's lifetime. The immediate comparisons that start coming to mind are other like very top of the draft quarterbacks who didn't pan out at all. Guys like Jamarcus Russell, Blaine Gabbert, like these are the names that start coming to mind when you start when you uh, Ryan Leaf, when you start talking about Zach Wilson in the same breath as them. So. I'd like to separate this because Eric Eager, currently of Sumer Sports, formerly of PFF kind of address this topic in uh, like specifically Jamarcus Russell. Eric Eager brought up that because of 
the lack of a rookie wage scale and because of how contracts were negotiated, Russell had way more guaranteed money than Zach Wilson had on that rookie deal, making Russell and his given performance infinitely worse. But I'd like to at least operate on the exercise of let's let's talk post-rookie wage scale. There are three that stand out to me. Earliest is 2012. We're in the top 10. You have Trent Richardson and Justin Blackman on this list. Richardson turns into one of the biggest wide receiver uh, running back busts. Uh, Justin Blackman for a top five pick only played 20 games and like really did not do much. Had 90, like broke a thousand yards on a career is good, but that comes in a draft with uh, like Ryan Tannehill, Stephon Gilmore, Fletcher Cox, Michael Brockers, Melvin Ingram, Chandler Jones, Riley Reef, Dante Hightower. Like these are all just first round players. You then go to 2015, and this is just at the wide receiver position. Kevin White by the Bears, seventh overall. That's a good one. Going over Todd Gurley, Danny Shelton. If you're just looking at wide receivers, not Dave Shelton, sorry. Uh, not 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 a rival for Kevin White. Uh, but if you're just looking at wide receivers, that is the same class of Devontae Parker, Nelson Aguilar, Rashad Perriman, and Philip Dorsett. And while those last Impressed. most of those names don't mean a ton, I get it. All of them have more than 28 catches. Which, Phillip, uh, which Kevin White has. And of the two touchdowns he scored in his career, one of them came this year. So, not great for Kevin White. The last one we have is Mitch Trubisky going over Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, there we go. And Mr. Watson. But I think why I call this take, like, actually a hot take there was a lot of conversation going on on Twitter about how this was always relatively obvious in his game. It was a high, uh, it was like a high ceiling, low floor kind of pick, high risk, high reward, whatever you want to call it. But the commitment to Zach Wilson two overall comes off the heels of these backyard football guys like Mahomes and Josh Allen come off these like, this very tight window of like backyard football playmaker, like high ceiling guys that didn't have a lot of NFL caliber structure at the collegiate level. And you knew that they were going to be project. If you're willing to ride it out, like maybe you get something. The difference is that Mahomes and Allen grasped the small stuff a lot more. Like they, they were able to grasp like, just the fundamentals of an NFL passing offense, which Wilson has really yet to show on a consistent level. Like, yeah, in the, you know, the end of that Lions game, when he came back, he's making those big time throws that looked a little reminiscent of what he was able to do at BYU in a COVID year. But like, unless you're able to do that consistently, unless you're able to draw it up, like it's just not there for him. It's, it's a really big, disappointment but 
I still think this risk was inherent. It's just a bit of hubris in thinking like, oh, yeah, all these guys pan out, right? If you put in the work, and that hasn't happened with Wilson. Yeah, but you have to put it. I mean, quarterbacks are always of a different echelon in this conversation, right? Like, I don't think you can even begin to compare Justin Blackman and Kevin White because those are teams who are thinking like, you know, let's let's give our offense a weapon. Let's, you know, build something around the quarterback that's already in the building. When you draft a Zach Wilson, you're saying we are going to build our entire offense around this guy. And that is what makes for a draft bust is when you put the entire future hopes of an offense, of an organization in the hands of a quarterback. So the Trubisky one is the most apt comparison to me. And Zach Wilson, like like you said, was seen as much more of a project. But there's kind of a comparison there to Trubisky as well, where it was really just one year of tape coming out of BYU. It was like, okay, things went really well for him in this one year in an offense with like 29-year-old offensive linemen, no blitz pressure, wide open receivers. Uh, And people forget coming into that year, it was like, is it going to be Lawrence or Justin Fields? Like, oh, if if Fields isn't the one, he's the obvious number two. And I don't know what happened to Justin Fields to make him slide so far down that he was suddenly the fourth quarterback on the board. Uh, And it devolved in like a month. Like it devolved in a time where no football was going on. Like it was just pro days and workouts at that point, which baffles me. I've never understood why that's always such a gigantic factor is like these pro days where guys are wearing shorts and nobody's rushing them. And all of a sudden, Jared Goff is slinging it, you know, looking great in those shorts, putting, you know, X X number of RPMs on the football with no one around. And it's like, oh, this is talent. Like, pay more attention to the tape and stop evaluating guys based on their pro day. I've never understood this. Because I, I think there's some credit in what you're able to do just on your own. Uh, and, like, you want to look independent of a system. But I also don't think that's very valuable. Like like you said, I don't think that's very valuable. You know who else had an incredible pro day? Jamarcus Russell. Jamarcus Russell. Remember, the, yes. remember the throw on one knee, one like the 60-yard yeah. bomb off one knee? That's, like, the thing that changed football the course of history. Listen, I get it. I'm just saying if you, <laughs> like – who knows if Jamarcus Russell's in a different system, like if he gets better coaching, like you can always make the argument that like maybe it works. And it's the same thing with Zach Wilson. Like maybe if you nurture him more, it works. But the Jets are just on a different timetable. And there's an argument that like they may not get back to this this current state of Jets where they've got three really good receiving options, a loaded running back room, uh, an offensive line that plays well when Wilson's not in and a top five defense in the league. There's an argument to be made that, like, because defenses regress every year, there's no guarantee that this is going to stay the same, and you've basically wasted a year. Now, the real question... Way more expensive, too. Yes, definitely. Like, I think think DJ Reed, I know for a fact, jumps from, like, four mil this year to 14 mil next year. Like, if you've got a couple guys hitting free agency, you've got to pay Quinn Williams, who's been by far your best defensive lineman this year. Uh, it's it's going to get really tough for him really quickly. Yeah, I just think that as much as you want to give a quarterback time to develop, the Jets don't have it. Like the window opened early and it's going to close early. Quick, quick question before we move on to headline. If you're putting a take out there, do they go veteran this offseason? 
or do they try your hand at going cheap rookie again and see if you can hold out? I think veteran is the answer. I, I just think you can't you can't start the cycle over again. You've got to try to win now uh, with this team, and then you know the rookie comes around when you re- reassemble the new young defensive core. I, I get that Sauce Gardner's a rookie on his rookie deal, but most of the rest of the defense is getting too expensive to wait around for a rookie to maybe work out one or two years down the line. Well, the secondary isn't, but that front seven is. I will certainly give you that. I get worried about the veteran deal. Just like, I don't know. It it just feels better to have a homegrown guy. And if things are getting more expensive, you probably want the rookie. The there's like two there's like two veteran QBs I'd do it for. A lot of people are pinning like Garoppolo on him, Carr on him. Uh I'd really like I'd see just how much capital it takes for me to get Lamar Jackson. That's about all I'd do. Like, I still want a guy, like, on the right side of 30. You know what I mean? Like, I want a guy that will be able to contend for five years. I don't know how many good years Derek Carr has in him. I get the translation from San Francisco to New York for Garoppolo, considering how many, uh, like, former 49ers are on that staff. I just, like, he can't, like, he's not going to a better team than San Francisco, especially the weapons around him. Like, he's not... You saw what he did. Uh, in the year they went to a Super Bowl, uh, it was close, but like he doesn't have the ceiling there. I'd just rather go a guy who has like totally high ceiling, like Lamar, or just shoot again for a rookie and use whatever capital, probably less, but whatever capital you'd use to get Lamar to trade up and get a more surefire rookie quarterback. Hey, look, there's 25, 26 teams that would probably sign up for Lamar over what they currently have a quarterback. So I agree with that. I just think if Baltimore lets him go, that's like blow it up territory. And we're going to talk about the Ravens in this show, I know. But I think that would be the biggest travesty in that organization's history if they didn't lock up Lamar and allowed him to go somewhere like the Jets. Like we said, we're going to be getting there in our headlines. But first, we've got to talk. A few more pressing issues, Jackson. Officially week 16, we're in, like, really where it matters playoff territory. We're cutting down scenarios. We've got about a half dozen teams eliminated. We've got another half dozen teams having clinched. And Jackson, the guys that moved the sticks were breaking down. What wildcard teams look the most threatening for this playoff picture. And Bucky Brooks is pinning the Chargers as the team most poised to make a run this postseason. Let's hear him give the take. And I'm going to take what you said because that is the recipe. You got to have a superstar quarterback and you need to have a dominant pass rush. Well, the team that you cover every week, the Chargers, they're the team that's really ripe to make a run. Okay, they've dealt with all the adversity throughout the course of the year. Brandon Staley has talked about all the things that had to overcome just to get to this point. They now are getting back healthy and having all of their guys back and ready to go. Okay, so offensively, we talked about Mike Williams, Keenan Allen. You have the emergence of DeAndre Carter. You have Josh Palmer. You have other weapons. You have Austin Eckler, 
who's playing at a nice level, making plays. You have Justin Herbert, who I still think can take his game up a notch, even though each and every week we see him play at a superstar level. Defensively, yeah, we can talk about their running game issues and that, but every now and then Brandon Staley pulls out a, a performance where he reminds you that, you know, he's pretty clever, he's pretty creative, and in a matchup league against the right team, they can give people problems. And so when you have Derwin James and you have Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack and those guys, you have enough star power on the defense to make a handful of plays. Because remember, Brooks goes on to basically say, as long as you have a good offense with a good quarterback that can keep you in a game, all you need is those couple defensive guys who can make a couple plays and swing things your way. That makes, in Brooks's eyes, the Chargers as the most poised wildcard team to make a run this postseason. Put it on the meter. It's pretty hot for me because, to me, the Chargers are Justin Herbert and nothing else right now. And I, I understand that there is talent on both sides of the ball not named Justin Herbert. But you watch that offense all year, and he's, you know, trying to – pick apart defenses essentially by himself. I get that they're getting healthier at the wide receiver position, but until Joe Lombardi is no longer the coordinator, I'm just going to be like on pins and needles watching every single one of their drives, hoping that they can continue to hit seven yard pass, seven yard pass until they get down there uh, because they just, you know, refuse to put together any kind of intelligent play design and throw the ball down the field. When they do, it usually works out. Uh, Like when Justin Herbert's hitting, Uh, Mike Williams 40 yards downfield because he has to to get them in the field goal range so their offense worries me to be able to keep up with some of the more explosive offenses in the AFC I think that's the other part of this take that I'm concerned about is I think the AFC is much deeper and scarier than the NFC Uh, and then on the defensive side of the ball like I get that there are individually talented players there but the defense all year long has pretty much just been bad like not even kind of like salvageable it's it's okay we're 20 25th against the run, 17th overall, and it's been improving. Uh, So I I guess there's some credence there. But for most of the season, it's been one of the worst defenses among playoff contenders. So, like, it's not that I hate the take because I I get that you have Justin Herbert and that can take you a very long way in any given situation. But there are other wildcard teams that I just think are more well-rounded, scarier, like better coached. Uh, like there's things about teams like Dallas, teams like Miami that I prefer to watching the Chargers try to pick teams apart with Justin Herbert and nothing else. I'll give a little devil's advocate and say after a whopping six games with a negative total DVOA, they've put up two straight, two of their three best uh, to their four best games by DVOA this season against the Miami Dolphins and the Tennessee Titans. Legitimate competition. They barely beat the Titans, though. Keep that in mind. All right. Let's let's just let's just okay. Two straight games, positive DVOA. Two of their better defensive performances of the year by past DVOA. One of their best performances in the Titans game by rushing DVOA this year. And earnestly, like, there's things that I will give you. Keenan Allen, uh, the, the real route running receiver, 
uh, cannot run routes anymore. Like his one strength was he's the best route runner in the league. Uh, and his hamstring has totally disallowed him from making uh, horizontal 90 degree cuts anymore. Uh, Brooks really touts the emergence of DeAndre Carter, who I don't think is anything special. Like he's a wide receiver four on this team. Uh, like I, I think this offense from the passing game really runs through Mike Williams, Austin Eckler, and Gerald Everett, uh, with like a bit of a Josh Palmer in there. Uh, yeah, Josh Palmer. Uh, I was thinking Jalen Guyton. Uh, I wanted to make sure I didn't say Jalen Guyton because he's the one that's been hurt uh, and hasn't played all year. Uh, the defense is looking a lot better, and I feel like Staley has found a rhythm in the past defense that he hasn't really had for a lot of the season, especially when you know J.C. Jackson was playing. I think there are certain elements to this where, like, the Chargers have the legs to make a run, especially depending on seed. Like, there is a world where the Chargers can get the five seed, play the Jaguars, and then would likely have the Chiefs the next round. And it's very rare. It's not that common to see a team beat another team three years in a row or three times in one season, three times in one season. So if the Chargers got lucky on seeding, because I don't, I don't know or think they could really beat the Bengals if they get, let's say the six seed and have to play the three seed in playoffs. I don't think that's there, but if they can get the Jaguars that first round, they always play competitive with the chiefs. And now all of a sudden you're in the AFC championship. If you win that game, I'm not saying you do, but I'm saying it's tough to beat a team three times in a row in one season. Sorry. I keep saying in a row. Like there's a way for you to get there. I'm a big advocate of saying there's a way. Cause I get it. Like when you have Justin Herbert, Herbert's a top five, top seven quarterback in the league, depending on where you put him. I don't know how many people are putting him outside of top 10. But he's a really good quarterback when he needs to be. I worry about the hamstring of an offense that Joe Lombardi puts on the team. I worry about, like, some of the rushing defense matchups. But outside of that, like, the playoffs, like, the playoffs are singular game things. Daly's a really good matchup-dependent player. And if you could shut down the Miami Dolphins passing attack, you could maybe shut down the Cincinnati Bengals passing attack. It's only one more weapon you got to worry about. So I'd be really curious to see how this team does. It's I wouldn't call it the most poised to make a run, but Bucky's certainly made it the most intriguing team in my eyes. I think Miami's more intriguing, just in the AFC, because I think the high end of what Miami can be is higher. I think we've seen the peak of the Chargers, which is kind of winning ugly on the backs of good defensive game planning and Justin Herbert covering up for all the other inadequacies with the offense. Whereas Miami, yeah, they can throw up a stinker like they did in that Chargers game and flame out in the first round, but they really went toe-to-toe with the Bills in the snow and almost pulled that game out. I don't see the Chargers being able to do something like that. I don't think they have that extra explosive dimension to them that Miami does. So Yes, the X factor is Herbert because Herbert can cover up a lot of evils and there's a hypothetical world where I could see him just beating somebody like the Chiefs by himself. 
but I'm more intrigued by a team that I feel like is better top to bottom like I am with a Miami. I still think Miami has a lower floor just they because do. like we saw what they have a lower floor. They absolutely do. They can well, I'm saying on all sides of the ball because it's it's a consistently bad defense. It is a it is not been a good defense outside of like the first few weeks where they're running cover zero and like really trying to blitz the hell out of people. I just don't like for the amount of money in this secondary between Xavier Howard, Byron Jones, Eric Rowe, uh, they should not be a bottom five secondary in football. I, I like even when you hit on guys like Kater Kohu uh, in the undrafted free agent pool, uh, he's gotten a bunch of time this year. Uh, I there's a second or third year safety whose name escapes Javon Holland. Uh, I really like as a safety prospect. Uh, like it shouldn't be a bottom five pass defense secondary. Uh, well, and I, with I'm the amount of capital that they've spent in the run game, I also don't think like this should be a better like this should be a better pass rush. This should be a better run defense. Like they should have earnestly, they should have a top ten defense in football with the amount of like stars that they have on this defensive line. And I'm consistently surprised that they're like average to below average in this league. Well, I'm glad you bring up DVOA because you say Miami's defense is much worse than LA's. It's actually one spot lower in the DVOA rankings, 18th compared to 17th. Meanwhile, Miami's offense is third at 17.2% and the Chargers are 24th at negative 7.8% on offense because they have been hamstrung by their coordinators and their injuries all year. So I'm going to take the offense that's been third in the league this year and can be much more explosive in a game against teams with star power on defense. And I will go with the team with Justin Herbert. That's what I'll take. And a better defensive mind. Moving on, Jackson. Just like we just got a little contentious in our relationship, things are getting contentious (laughs) between the relationship of Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick. Allegedly. 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 Mm. Jackson, tell me about what Albert Breer said on NBC Sports Boston. I would love to, Kale. That sounds like the best use of my time right now, actually. <laughs> Albert Breer, um, I, I wish I remembered what the title of the show was, Bad Journalism on my part. But obviously, if you go on Boston local television, talk radio right now, the main topic is going to be what the heck happened in Sunday's game against the Raiders? Who do we hold responsible And what does the future of this team look like now that this season appears to be going up in smoke? So Albert Breer, he's been around this team a long time. He was also around in the Parcells era. And he has a little bit of a conjecture of what might happen if Robert Kraft chooses to be a little more strict with Bill Belichick this offseason. Number two, I don't think that the Krafts are going to fire Bill this year. But what happens if there's an ultimatum? What happens if Robert Kraft decides you need to change X, Y, and Z? All I know, I was in Dallas after Parcells left, and I remember talking to people about how that happened, and it wasn't because Parcells hated Jerry or Stephen Jones. It was because I came here on my terms. I wanted to do the job on my terms, and once I couldn't do the job on my terms, it was time for me to leave. That's who Bill learned from. Well, Kim, the take is... Robert Kraft could say, you know, maybe you have to fire Matt Patricia. 
fire Joe Judge even, bring in someone from this list of names of offensive coordinators that I'd like you to interview. And if Belichick hears that, you might just walk out the door, put it on the meeting. Uh, yeah, it's – it's – I don't know which direction we're putting something. It's freezing. I think it's dead wrong. Uh, like, Belichick's already said that there's problems with this offense. I, I think he's already – not fully like regretted the decision of trying to be uh, the Nick Saban of the NFL using guys as like washed out coaches as uh, you know, specialists per se. Uh, But he's fully admitted. He's like, it's like the offense is bad and it's too late to fix the offense in about as Belichickian of terms as he'll ever give us. But this, I don't think it's it's a crazy departure to, like, if Kraft said, like, yeah, you need to get new offensive guys, I don't think he would quit a team he's been a part of for two decades just because he's got to fire Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. I don't think that's a big, <clears throat> I don't think that's a big, like, ultimatum, like, that's what's going to be the breaking point. I also think the competitor in Bill Belichick, like there were a lot of writing the Patriots chapter for the Almanac. There were a lot of ways this team could go and I'll get into the offensive half of that. uh, When we're putting ourselves out there at the end of the show, spoiler alert, but the other end of this equation was we had no idea how this defense was going to be. It was a complete personnel overhaul in the secondary they're going to do some more things, run some more zone. Like on top of them partially switching an offense and it not taking. Uh, part of it was like it's a it's a younger defense. There's new personnel. You have a new kind of linebacker, a new kind of linebacker in the mix. How is this going to work? And it's worked, for lack of a better term, uh, spectacularly. England's second in total DVOA in defense. Uh, third best in the league in passing DVOA when a legitimate concern was uh, how is Jalen Hurt or uh, Jalen Mills, uh, two rookie cornerbacks with the last name Jones, uh, and a secondary mostly led by safeties, is going to handle uh, this season and this schedule. And they've done it really well. They've also top 10 rushing DVOA. Seen a massive emergence in guys like Matthew Judon. You've seen big developmental steps in guys like Kyle Duggar, Josh Uche, and the aforementioned Jack and Marcus Mills or uh, Jack and Marcus Jones, both cornerbacks. One is like really good shutdown cornerback. Won a uh, basically every man Swiss Army knife special teamer wide receiver. Uh, about all you can ask for in a player. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's a big stretch for him where, like, maybe, like, schematically, Belichick has to eat some crow and, like, take a step back. Uh, and, like, if Kraft starts to push, like, philosophical changes on him where he has to go higher, like, the next Mike McDaniel or Sean McVay, maybe I see some things because those are two different generations. Belichick likes hiring guys he has experience with, whatever. But if Kraft says, like, you know, we just need a change at offense and Kraft approves, like, a Bill O'Brien hire, yeah, Bill's keeping his job. I don't think he's leaving. 
Yeah, Bill O'Brien is kind of the X factor in all this. I think Belichick would bring Bill O'Brien back. He's honestly the second best offensive coordinator the team's had behind Josh McDaniels. And I, I think that would kind of be like the middle of the road solution that should in theory work for everyone. And that's where I'm mostly with you is because I think not only has Belichick acknowledged the failures of this offense, but we haven't seen too much hard evidence that he's unwilling to bring in like, uh, like this off season was the year where he sort of went against the grain and wasn't willing to bring in new coaches. But throughout his tenure, aside from that, they've always been developing people, whether it was McDaniels early on or later with guys like a Brian Flores and even a Joe judge one uh, kind of in the middle there who ends up becoming a head coach later on. It's kind of the first time this off season that we were seeing Belichick sort of go rogue and try to build a coaching staff his own way. And I like to think that he's still, you know, smart enough, adaptable enough to admit that, you know, there was an error in my ways. And he's he's still very much trying, I think, to pass Don Shula's record, which will probably take him two, three more years. And he's probably not going to get a job anywhere else where that's more likely. Like, sure, he could go get the Houston job. That's no problem. But I don't think you're going to win any more games in Houston than you are here. Uh, and, you know, obviously he's getting up there in age as well. So he's... He's not got a ton of time left to win lots of games, and I think that legacy piece is important for him, and I think it makes the most sense for him to try and, you know, salvage the time that he has left here in New England and, and make sure that he's actually building out a coaching staff that has people on it who know offense. I Yeah. I, the legacy thing is really interesting to me because it's one of those things where I just don't know how like I'll like we'll never know how much legacy really matters to these coaches because they'll never, for the most part, they'll never openly admit it. But I do think like this is a roster, at least on the surface, okay enough to like still be competitive. Because like, listen, as much as the sky is falling in New England uh, or like among Patriots fans. Like the Patriots win out and they're in the playoffs. Like it's I get I get it's it's two bad seasons in the it's eyes also of the, the toughest stretch of their schedule that they have the entire season these last three games. Oh, I I listen. I know. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy to do that. I'm just saying it's still like the Patriots are in that control their own destiny territory. They also have the fourth most cap space in the league with 44 players signed to their roster in this offseason. Like, in that cap space is mutable. They only have $1.3 million in dead cap next year. So, like, you can really make more cap space if you want to. If you don't want to go with Mac Jones, like, you can get a new quarterback and some assets. If you want to start dipping into dead cap, you have more than enough flexibility to do so. It's not that big an issue for this team to like really reinvent themselves as long as they have the coaching infrastructure to do so. I think like New England as much as much garbage has been thrown at them for this season. I I'm I that was a weird phrase, but I'm trying not to swear. <laughs> uh like it's still like on service level, like a solid roster. There's some O-line reinventing that has to get done. I don't even think you need to like totally change up the offensive personnel. You need a one, obviously. They've needed a one since like Randy Moss left. Uh, but Wrong. 
Gronk is unique. Uh, Gronk is like Kelsey. Gronk, I, it's yeah. like so. But that's what I mean. Like you didn't need a one when you had Gronk. Now you don't exactly. have Gronk, so you need a one. And a reliable slot guy like an Edelman slash Welker. Like yeah, I completely get what you're saying. But like the base, like the base level of this running back room, this wide receiver room. Like, it's just a misuse of personnel. You can get new guys in. And if you have, like, a half – if this is a league average offense, they'd have double-digit wins. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. Can you maybe, like, hope that a Jackson Smith and Jigba falls to you in the draft and, you know, instead of going out and signing the big-money receiver? Because big-money receiver contracts have been really tough to come by and actually have work out in the last few off-seasons. More of them – whether you're looking at the Patriots ones like a Nelson Aguilar or you look at a Kenny Galladay. I mean, the best case scenario lately seems to have been Christian Kirk. Uh, even he's kind of losing steam in that offense with the emergence of Ingram and Zay Jones. Like, I don't know if you're really going to go out in the receiver market and pay somebody and have it work out successfully in your favor. So are you better off using your first pick on a receiver and hoping that guy pans out to be a star? JSN is a fascinating one to me uh, because – uh, I'm also just going to call him JSN because it is a seven-syllable name and I won't learn to say it till April. But he's fascinating to me because, like, that's where that's where the Patriots – the Patriots are projected to take him in, like, consensus big board mock, but uh, I've never trusted the Patriots to draft a receiver and I'm still scarred by the likes of, uh, you know, Aaron Dobson, Nikhil Harry, Josh Boyce uh, – Kenbrell Tompkins, uh, who's the who's the receiver that retired after the Falcons Super Bowl to become yeah, a Mitchell. Malcolm Mitchell. Malcolm Mitchell was awesome. He uh, was good. Guys, <laughs> this is just going to turn into uh, remember that Patriot. Yeah, basically, if we keep doing this, so uh, do we agree to move on? Yeah, I think so. That's a good I transition think- out of it. I do remember Malcolm Mitchell. Next, perfect. Moving on, last one on the docket for headlines. Of all the teams that have had a disappointing offense, out we've named basically all three of them in the AFC at this point. We got the Chargers first, then the New England Patriots, and now we're up to the Baltimore Ravens, Jackson. John Ledyard of Audibles and Analytics had Taylor Kyles on to break down the current state of the AFC playoff contenders. And in an evergreen pod, we were going to do this last week, but we bumped it to this week. And now all of a sudden, you know, the ringer puts out an Island episode saying Lamar Jackson should never play for the Ravens again. Ryan Clark put something out uh, on get up. That basically is a one and a half minute segment on how badly the Ravens have let down Lamar Jackson. Uh, It's been a, consistent theme of this week we chose ledyard's breakdown because it gives kind of the nuanced opinion of why the ravens have disappointed lamar jackson so fully let's hear ledyard explain what is better about the ravens that we're supposed to buy into them as a real contending team people have done this last couple of regular seasons with the ravens they've said oh the harbaugh's a good coach lamar's a good quarterback DeCoste is a good GM. This must be a team that's a real contender. And while I think all three of those things are true, I wonder if there's a ceiling on any or all of those three things 
that like might be short of being the type of team that people see them as because they are a good team. Um, they have a good backup quarterback too. That's helped them win games each of the last couple of years when Lamar's missed time. I just wonder what is the ceiling for this Ravens team? Cause it doesn't feel like they've gotten any closer to trying to explore what that ceiling is. And I actually kind of give a little bit of blame for that to DeCosta. I know it's kind of a Ballard situation that everybody wants to bow down to the guy because he gets hundred draft picks every year and he hits on enough of them uh, to, to keep the, the talent pool in the team flowing, but he has not made an all in move. Like this is not a team that's really tried to, I feel like make them type of move. That's going to put them over the top um, and acquire those kind of weapons and um, you know, get an offense that's going to be more dynamic than it's been in the past. It, it really isn't. It's so Lamar dependent. The Baltimore Ravens have not yet explored the full potential under Lamar Jackson. And despite how universally praised the Baltimore Ravens are at drafting and in free agency, their GM DaCosta is partially to blame. Put it on the meter. I agree with everything he just said. I, I guess I'll just go down the middle here. I'll go right to the lukewarm take. I don't think it's like spicy spicy to say that a team whose offense is built around Mark Andrews, Rashad Bateman, who's injured and I don't know, JK Dobbins, James Prochet, uh, recently acquired off waivers from the green Bay Packers, Sammy Watkins. Like it only gets worse from there. The names just get abysmal. Uh, when you look at this wide receiver room very quickly. So I don't think it can be that hot to say that that team has failed its quarterback. Uh, but it's it's so true. Like, they're very good at drafting defensive talent. They have stacked up the defensive oh, talent in recent years. And they just went right back to the well this year and said, you know what we need is Kyle Hamilton and J David Ajabo. It's like, yeah, having those guys would be great. I'm sure you won't regret having them for the next few years. But that only works if you have an offense that is capable of supporting your superstar quarterback to the level that can help you compete for a championship. And I don't see any way that they're able to do that this year. You look at every other good quarterback, he's got those like go-to weapons who you can't deny are really, really good. And maybe they're elevated to the status of like near the best in the league because of their quarterback. If you look at say Stefan Diggs, who was really good, but not great before he got to Buffalo, um, or like uh, Jamar Chase, I think he would probably still be great anywhere else, but we haven't seen him with anyone but Joe Burrow in, uh, in his entire college or pro career. Mark Andrews is not that guy, right? Like Mark Andrews is, if you play fantasy football and you think, oh, he's the number two tight end, you might be convinced that he's a game-breaking player. He's not. He's a good tight end. Those are not a dime a dozen, but they're fairly common in the NFL. They do not have a single skill player on that team who can work with Lamar Jackson to make that offense explosive and near the top of the league. So yeah, it's a, it's a systemic failure when you can't give a guy who's won an MVP and is still, you know, far away from 30, anyone on that offense to be like, okay, let's, when, when the game comes down to it, you know, who am I leading a two minute drive with? Cause it's not Mark Andrews. And so far Rashad Bateman has not proven to be that guy either. The, the help aspect is so fascinating to me. Because they've just never given him anything. Like, in terms of non-drafted free agent signings, you've got, like, a Willie Sneed. You've got a 32-year-old Des Bryant. You've got a 35-year-old 
uh, uh, Deshaun Jackson. Uh, in the draft, the receivers you've taken since figuring out Lamar Jackson is the guy, Rashad Bateman, who has really not been able to stay on the field because of injuries, Tylen Wallace, Devin Duvernay, and Hollywood Brown, who you just traded away, and Miles Boykin. Like, really, no. Like, really, nobody. Rashad Bateman is, I give, I, I give more credit because, like, good prospect, but when you draft a guy that high that has injury concerns and has really not been able to stay on the field because of not just, like, one blown knee or, like, a broken bone, but just, like, a bunch of ticky-tack stuff, a bunch of things that will make you miss two games here, three games there, or, like, I forget what ruled him out for the rest of the season this year, but, like, Bateman has not been able to stay on the field. I talk about it. Not only is it an indictment of, like, pure talent on this roster, but it's also, like, play calling stuff. I get wanting to be, like, zig where you zag, and, like, everyone's going open concepts, like, forwards, like, really open passing stuff, really trying to strike down field, pass heavy concepts, whatever. And you can go because of personnel is changing. Let's be the run heavy guy. Let's be the Patriots. Let's like bully teams. I get that, especially when you have a mobile quarterback like Jackson. That being said, play caller for the Baltimore Ravens in Greg Roman just isn't isn't panning out. Like you get those occasional dial ups of you know the 60-yard pass to 35-year-old Deshaun Jackson, which, by the way, would have been a touchdown if it was not 35-year-old Deshaun Jackson. Because of the fact he has to come back and, like, isn't able to catch in stride, but really has to, like, cradle it because he's 35 years old, the guy's able to catch up to him. If he catches that in stride, it's a touchdown. But in that same game against Jacksonville Jaguars, you also throw him, like, third and intermediate screens to fullback Patrick Ricard. Like, this is not a well designed, creative offense. You're not throwing a ball enough to, like, your actual receiving talent because you don't have receiving talent. Like, you're play-calling suspect at best. When Demarcus Robinson is leading your team and about all passing, volume passing metrics, uh, there's a big problem. Like, you don't, like, you don't have help from this team. You're putting too much weight on Jackson's shoulders. And instead of doing the Kansas City thing where it's like, Let's just get a bunch of bodies and see what works of like mid-tier guys. You're going to put all that money into defense. Like I, I get the direction of what Baltimore has run on in the past. And they've been able to do it with Joe Flacco and like a bunch of guys. But like, like I'm probably just correct. Like there's probably a bunch of Ravens receivers and uh, running backs. I'm totally forgetting about during that Flacco era. But, like, just because you have Mark Andrews doesn't mean that, like, the job's done. Like, you need a lot more offensive talent integrated into this team. You need a better offensive coordinator integrated into this team, running a better scheme. And basically, the Lamar Jackson era has been, like, a bit of a letdown. You have a guy win unanimous MVP, and you haven't been able to do anything with it since. Sad at all. I, I think, like, it, you just look at a game like that Jacksonville game where – uh, I can't remember if Mark Andrews was out for that game or if he was just really ineffective, but they get down in the red zone five or six times, and every time except one, they're settling for a field goal because 
it's third and goal at the five. Who are you going to? You just really don't have anybody who you trust to get themselves open or make a tough catch in traffic. It's like, oh, I'll throw a fade to Deshaun Jackson. Of course you won't. Uh, Isaiah Likely, good prospect. Haven't really seen anything from him outside that Tampa Bay game. So there's all these guys who are like, they can make a couple plays a season that are intriguing, but you just don't trust them in important situations. And I think that's what's going to come back to bite them in the playoffs too, is, is you don't have a trustworthy weapon who you can go to in crunch time, especially if Mark Andrews is at all hampered by the injuries that he's kind of had lingering throughout the season. The last thing I'll say on it, most fascinating thing to me is that Lamar Jackson's really able to like elevate players. Like you want to get, like you want a wide receiver one who can complement your quarterback and like make his job easier. But there is a real testament in how Lamar Jackson elevates players. Like take tight end Josh Oliver, for example. Josh Oliver is in his third year in the league, second with Baltimore. He was kind of the quote-unquote star, because there weren't really many, of that Jacksonville game. He finished with four catches for 76 yards and a touchdown. Jackson, that singular single-game stat line would not only be the best of his career to this date, but it would dwarf in total yards, touchdowns, and all but one year in reception. Both of his previous seasons in just total volume. Like that one game beats individually the last two years of football he's played. You know what that guy did the next three games? He started the next three games, didn't get a single pass in two of them, and then this past week against the Browns, he gets two catches for 13 yards on two targets. Like in singular situations, Jackson can elevate players to perform. Like it's it's what good quarterbacks do is they elevate the talent around them. It's what good coordinators do is get guys open. But like when you're making career play, like when you're making career games out of singular players, like it's probably not a good thing. Like it's probably not a good thing that in this game, Josh Oliver was like your third best target. Like, why is that your best option? It, it's it's just a complete indictment on the entire thing for me. Like, it, it just really ruins a team that we should probably have more respect for, earnestly. Yeah, I mean, Lamar is that special. Like, he can be in the conversation with the top three to five quarterbacks in the league any given season at the start of this year we were talking about him as the runaway mvp through the first three games because of how much he was elevating the team around him and eventually that just comes back to haunt you when they can't hold up their end of the bargain as always we cannot be the arbiter of takes football outsiders cannot run a whole show on takes without putting a few of their own takes to the test. And we've got a two for this week, folks. This has been a week of clickbait content for, or click-driven content for Football Outsiders. Let's start with Brian Knowles, who wrote down a list of coaching hot seats, including the lovely named Cliff Kingsbury roasting on an open fire. 
he gets into this list, you know, does a whole Christmas Carol thing. And Ghost of Hot Seat's present, which is his coach is likely to get fired. Fourth on this list is Todd Bolt of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He admits it's a little controversial, but Jackson, <laughs> tell me about what Brian Knowles had to say about Mr. Bowles. Boy. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, like you said, this is the category where he's saying, like, serious jeopardy of being fired, if not, like, already gone in a sense of Nathaniel Hackett and uh, Cliff Kingsbury. So, I like, the biggest thing that he says was, like, situationally, this team is massively underperforming. They fall apart in situations like the Packers game where they got a delay of game on a two-point attempt that would have tied the game and lost. Uh, they've been terrible down in the red zone all season long. Uh, and, and also, like, good luck to whoever inherits the job if Todd Bowles loses it. That was my biggest takeaway is Tom Brady's a free agent. Kale, I know you're a bit of a Kyle Trask truther, but he might be the starting quarterback for them in 2023. Uh, and they're also in absolute cap hell. Um, $56 million projected over the cap next year. Well, so, so I have like, no idea how you can like fire him and start over when that's the situation you're inheriting if he's gone. You've got you've to let me address the Kyle Trask allegations. <laughs> Apparently. I, I liked one video on a guy breaking down like, you know, outside of first round picks, like there's always a guy in the late rounds who breaks out. Kyle Trask working under Brady. You haven't seen him yet, but he might be the guy. In the same way that, like, Jordan Love in year four, whatever he's in, looked, like, okay against uh, whatever team they were playing on national television when Rodgers got hurt. Uh, it was the Eagles, right? Yeah, it was the Eagles. Uh, Jackson, I don't know where you put this on the meter, but, like, the Bucks are such an interesting team to me. I put this on, I put this on hot because there's credence to it. But I also see this, like, this world of excuses of this team. Like, Godwin's having one of the worst years of his career. Uh, they've constantly been banged up injury-wise, uh, both on the offensive line and mainly at the wide receiver position. The defense is relatively underperformed while also missing players that they've lost in pre-agency. They haven't really done a good job of trying to replace them. Uh and the biggest thing to me is like a is a slight drop off by Brady, not in performance, but like in his ability to evade pressure. He looks really scared in the pocket, and I think that's because he's forty five and has an injured offensive line. Outside of like, I don't know where Bull sits in our head coaching ranks, which come out every week on the FO website, but. Outside of a few coaching decisions, I see a lot of like external decision like i see a lot of external factors that would dissuade me from like outright making bowls a one-year firing and i also wonder how much the vote of confidence from bruce arians who is still in the building mind you gives bowls an extra year i don't think when one of the best coaches of your uh franchise's history that comes in wins a super bowl with Brady year one, like puts up historic numbers. When he retires, 
and says like this man is the right man for the job i don't think you can go one and done with him maybe that's anecdotal and maybe he starts the year on the hot seat but i don't think you can just go one and done with him well anecdotes are important and that's the anecdote that i fully support to back up this argument and why i think it's a hot take uh and a take that i i don't see coming to pass is because it's basically still Bruce Arians team. I know he retires late in the off season. seems like he just wants to play more golf and still kind of have a hand in the cookie jar, but Todd Bowles is his guy. And Todd Bowles is part of the infrastructure that won you that Super Bowl. It'd be one thing if he was an external hire with Bruce Arians blessing, he has been running that defense the entire time that they were having this winning stretch. Um, now where I could see it getting dicey is if they lose the division. If they miss the playoffs after the just cakewalk that they've had to get there, uh, it's just been handed to them on a silver platter. If they lose to Carolina at home and miss the playoffs, then I still don't think he's gone, but I could see it being justified. But I think as ugly as it is to say, like if you win the division, (laughs) no matter what your record is, and you have a head coach who has been in the building a long time and was basically handpicked by the old guy to say, like, he's taking over for me, you're not firing him as long as that team at least makes an appearance in the playoffs. In earnest, the fact that there's a uh, that all four teams are still eligible in the NFC South is probably an indictment on Bulls. But I do think, like, if anyone has a problem, it might be Leftwich. Like... The fact that he was getting, uh, like, head coaching considerations. I think this offense has been really tepid. Uh, like, I think there's things outside of Bowles that get changed before Bowles loses his job. I agree. And this defense has still been pretty good. You know, ninth yeah. in the league in DVOA. Pretty good against both the pass and the rush. Like, it's not a, a defense that's going to win you games like the 49ers defense, but it's doing its job for the most part. It's doing its job and given the money in this defense is like two different things. Like when you have like, yeah, it's a David, like when you're so loaded up there, you need like, this was a consistent top five defense for a couple of years under Brady. And yeah, it's ninth, but like it, it shouldn't be this bad. When you have a schedule this easy, you know, I get it's, you know, defensive, it's like opponent adjusted. But like when you have this kind of schedule, it shouldn't be uh, this poor. Let's move on. They've played other tough teams, though, just to, to, to close that loop. Outside, like outside the, of division, yeah. Yeah, they had the Kansas City game, the San Francisco game, the Cincinnati game, and all these games in which they give up lots of points. It's because the offense is just handing the ball back to the other team over and over and over again, and eventually you can't stop that anymore. Keeping it in the FO network for our first two of our own, Mike Tanier. Little interesting list here for what he calls the NFL all-narrative team. His intro kind of says, like, oh, yeah, the year's dominated by Jalen Hurts and Tua and Micah Parsons and Patrick Mahomes and Justin Jefferson. But the story of the 2022 season is told by many different players, not the top performers, but the ones that make the most headlines. And of all these players, the one that really stood out to me personally was of Josh Jacobs from the Las Vegas Raiders, a guy who's had an up-and-down year. Fantasy stock plummeted 
in the preseason, as Tanir says, McDaniels even makes him take some reps in the Hall of Fame game, which is unheard of for starters. Uh, and then just has these really interesting pockets of crazy performance. A three-game, 441, six-touchdown stretch in October, and a four-game, 581, four-touchdown stretch just before fantasy playoffs. So most, you know, most November, early December. He's been limited by injuries. Is about to enter free agency. The line that stands out to me. Talk show personalities will wonder straight-facedly why he isn't getting Ezekiel Elliott-sized offers. The analytics community will roll our eyes, and fantasy gurus will eventually write 10,000-word dissertations on what Josh Jacobs' new $60 million contract means to Travis Etienne. Jax, what that reads to me like is that despite maybe Jacobs' best year of his career, he is not deserving of top 10 running back money. Top five it'll at the very least. Put it on the meter. So if he's going to get paid, it should be by the Raiders. Um, just because, and this is the whole thing about running back contracts and, and running back movement in general, is the teams that have a lot of cap space entering this offseason I don't think are in positions to be spending it on running backs. Teams like the Falcons, Bears, like they already have, if not star running backs, at least very competent running back rooms and lots of other needs to address. And I think aside from maybe a Tony Pollard, who's in a running back room with Ezekiel Elliott, who's already been paid ludicrous amounts of money, for the most part, it doesn't make sense for these running backs to really leave home. So with that being said, like there's no doubt this is Josh Jacobs' best year of his career. But the other years of his career, when he didn't have, you know, say a Devontae Adams around him in the offense for teams to worry about, and he was kind of carrying the load, were a little bit up and down. And I, I blame a lot of that on the offensive line because for years, Josh Jacobs was leading the league in yards after contact, uh, but contact was coming behind the line of scrimmage, so it wasn't resulting in the yards per carry numbers that the best backs in the league put up. Uh, and, and I don't know where that leaves him, to be honest. Like, I don't have a good answer for you on what he deserves because he has been up and down, and right now he's on such a big upswing that I worry about the next downswing coming after you pay him. Uh, and paying running backs in general, as we know, is a big, like, almost a no-no at this point. It's like, just invest in the third-round pick and hope he turns out to be Alvin Kamara or Ramondre Stevenson. So... I mean, it's not that I don't think he deserves that money. Like, he deserves to be paid well because he has been one of the best backs in the league this year. It's more like, what happens if you do and he goes back to being slightly above average instead of one of the best in the league? So in that sense, I think it's kind of a hot take or kind of a cold take because I think everyone understands the risks that are involved with committing a lot of money to a running back, especially one who's got four years of wear and tear on him already. Four, year, four years of wear and tear is, you know, relatively little in the – like, I get it. If you like, really. He also had a big – he also had a big, like, college workload at Alabama, so I get it. He's always been a bell cow, and, like, NFL running backs have kind of lately always been at their best in their first four years. Yeah, there is that – I forget the uh, number of total touches it is, but after a certain number of touches, I think it's 
think I want to say it's 1200. Uh, but you see a considerable decline after that point. It's not an age thing. It's a, it's a workload thing, which like you said, Jacobs would be closer to the most running backs because of his bell cow staff. That being said, this is the best year of Jacobs's career by rushing DVOA, rushing DYAR, and also receiving DVOA and receiving DYAR. Uh, the receiving half by a long shot. Now, Jacobs in his career hasn't been like a totally, totally big passing back. But under McDaniels, who comes from a New England system, has kind of become one. It started last year a little bit, 54 receptions. He's already at 46. There's a pretty good chance he outpaces that number on fewer targets, mind you. He's already broken last year's receiving yards. Uh, his career high for single season uh, receiving the yards. He's well, well ahead of any rushing total he's ever posted. Uh, uh, 1,495 yards. Eleven. He's a touchdown shy of tying his most rushing touchdowns in a season. Funny enough, he's never caught a uh, he's never caught a touchdown, which is interesting. But that being said, that $60 million figure sticks out to me because there's four guys who already get paid ahead of that. It's Zeke, it's Alvin Kamara, it's Christian McCaffrey, and it's Dalvin Cook. Three of those four guys are very, very involved in the passing game. And if this is this is now a second year of – Jacobs being used as a dual threat back. Listen, I see a world. I get, I get to Nier's point of he's not deserving of that money because you look at his, you look at his total outputs. Like he's a player that gets kind of hurt. He has only ever, he's like, this would be the closest he's come to outright finishing a season completely. Uh, he's never played all 16 games in a season. He's always been banged up with something. But given this total volume of output and given this new addition to his game, there's a market forming in like paying running backs. I'm not saying it's a good decision, but you have like a lot of big name running backs on this list that have been paid. If a team is willing to pay for a high end caliber running back talent, I think the receiving end of that production allows him a little bit more to justify earning that money. I get that. I just think you're gonna you're gonna be more regretful if it doesn't work out and you've committed a lot of money to a running back than you are by trying to rebuild uh, you know, from a, from a running back perspective. Like if someone is willing to pay Josh Jacobs, Alvin Kamara money, you should let them do that. That's just my, oh, opinion, yeah. I think, I think if you're talking like, how do we build this offense next year? It's, it's pretty simple. It's like, okay, we continue to have Devonte Adams be the go-to target. We get Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller back healthy and hope that they stay healthy for a full season and we try to find the third rounder who ends up becoming Ramondre Stevenson because there seems to be one of those every year. So I don't like, I hate to say that like Josh Jacobs is replaceable, but he's much more replaceable than, 
you know, Devontae Adams. And, and I, I worry about like the infrastructure of that offense. If you have so much money committed to a running back. I mean, you, listen, you nailed it. I'm not saying it's justifiable. I'm not saying I want my team to do it. I'm just saying like, it could be part, like it could be partially earned because of like the dual threat and the known commodity he provides. That being said, like Kenneth Walker is not exactly a high draft pick. Uh, Zonovan Knight, who has kind of come out of nowhere, undrafted rookie free agent this year. Like, it's not that these guys are a dime a dozen. It's that you can find productive running back talent at all levels of the league. If you want veteran guys, they've got to be able to provide something else. And I think Jacobs does provide something else, but it's small sample size of something else. So yeah. we'll see. How and they happens. love him there, and he's got the captain C on his jersey already, and and I get all of that. Um, and it's not that I'm saying that anybody can step in and do Josh Jacobs' job, but can you do 85% of Josh Jacobs' job for 10% of the money? That's where my head's at. Listen, if, if it was that easy, every team would do it, right? They should all try and do it. But. Most do. <laughs> Most do it successfully, I feel like, nowadays. All right, that'll do it. But before we leave, we've got to put ourselves out there, Jackson. We cannot be the arbiter of takes without putting out some takes of our own. I mean, this is – we've had take obituaries on this show before. This is maybe a little bit more of a take victory lap because this was uh, recorded yesterday before the Jets-Jaguars game, and now we are obviously in the aftermath of it. But it is a two-pronged take, and it is also a chance for me to shout out my friends – at Q Sports Talk, a.k.a. ESPN Radio Syracuse. I was called in for my football expertise, and I was asked a question about two of our very favorite teams and whether or not they can make the playoffs. So why don't you play that clip, Kel? Let's dive in. Most impact of anybody on their team. Jackson, we looked at the, the top of both leagues, but I want to look at two teams that, that are, are fighting for the playoffs in the Detroit Lions and, and Jacksonville. You realistically think these two teams can can make the playoffs uh, coming down the stretch around here? I do. I think both of them can. Uh, starting with Detroit, wildly enough, the number two passer in the league behind Patrick Mahomes in terms of that DYAR metric that I mentioned is Jared Goff. Now, I don't think any of us believe that Goff is the second best quarterback in the league, but it goes to show you that when you build the right team around him, when you surround him with the right weapons and you put like a Panay Sewell and you strengthen the rest of that offensive line around him, he with a clean pocket can spin it just about as well as anybody. And their defense has really come to life as well. This is a defense that through seven games was one of the worst defense we had seen in recent memory and has really picked it up. You know, young guys uh, have kind of stepped up and played their roles. The secondary is much improved and they're just playing with momentum right now. And there's not a lot of teams kind of towards the bottom of that NFC wildcard picture that can, you know, say that right now. And they have a very manageable schedule the rest of the way as well. Uh, Carolina this week and then, got to deal with the Packers at some point as well but I, I really think they can win the rest of their games and, and find a way to get in even at 9-8 and eight, that might clinch an NFC playoff spot. Jaguars I mean they pretty much control their own destiny right now as well. It's more than likely going to come down to that final game of the season against Tennessee Jacksonville cooked Tennessee two weeks ago. Ryan Tannehill may not appear again this season it sounds like he's not going to so i mean a trevor lawrence versus malik willis matchup i think i like jacksonville on that one pretty big man i i, I put my flag in the ground 
Uh, shout out to Mario Sacco, of course, who asked the question, and Stephen Fonte, my former professor, for having me back on the air. But I said it. I said Jacksonville and Detroit are both making the playoffs. So not just like put me on the meter, but are you are you fully on the train as well? It's gonna happen. Jackson, how long have I been on the train? <laughs> well, I, you got off at one point. I invented combustion when it comes to the Lions. They were one in four, and I was picking them to make the playoffs. And then they lost their next two, and I'm not sure you stuck by it. Hey, listen. Didn't say it was going to immediately turn around. Just <laughs> said they were going to make the playoffs. Lo and behold, where are we? Uh, Jacksonville, I've become more high on. Talked about last week when we broke down Dallas-Jacksonville before it happened that I thought they were going to control their own destiny and actually win the AFC South. Doing the any given Sunday when Jacksonville actually upset Dallas kind of further proved it to me. They've got a dominant pass rush, man. Like they're like, even with Trayvon Walker out, like Josh Allen is awesome. Arden Key, great. Like they've got a lot of good pieces in their rotational. Dwayne Smoot, had a pass breakup, like dropping into coverage. I know he's now injured from last night, but <clears throat> great, great player. It's the secondary that's the real problem there. Uh, the fact that Jacksonville is such a uh, – so weak in the secondary scares me a little bit, but they were also able to shut down uh, a pretty <laughs> – again, Zach Wilson – but, like, Zach Wilson made some big throws against the Detroit Lions, who have a only slightly better secondary than Jacksonville. Yeah. I think, but like, let's credit where credit's due, Jackson. You're pulling for both the underdog big cat teams, and I think they're both going to fulfill their end of the bargain. It's not quite a take victory lap because for either of us, because it is far from a clinching uh, – clinching environment but while these are still takes and not you know solidified in stone yet i love them both yeah and i think what i mainly meant was uh this could have been an ugly scene if we came on here the day after i said all that and the jags had lost to the jets in metlife that clearly yeah, did not happen like byu wilson thrown for yep, 300 yep. yards gives me a lot more credence uh also uh, shout out to Andre Cisco, who is maybe the one member of that secondary who's had a really strong year. Uh, really effective safety blitzer. Hit Zach Wilson so hard that he almost went through the turf at MetLife last night. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not set in stone, but it's looking good as of right now for both of those teams. Uh, weirdly enough, I'm most worried about that Bears game for Detroit that I didn't mention in the interview. Like, I think they'll take care of Carolina this week, and then it's kind of scary to face a Bears team who has nothing left to lose and has lost so many games in a row but come close in all of them. It's like one of these, to use your Texans model, like one of these finally has to break their way. And I, for the sake of my take and for the sake of the Lions, who I love, hope it's not against them. But feeling good about it as of right now. Yeah, the Lions Lions is tough just because they have that one loss to the Seahawks and they're tied with them. That is the tough one. But I do, th- I do. The think Oaks play the Chiefs this week, though. I yeah, and uh, the other team in front of them, the Commanders, play the Niners, as we already mentioned. 
which will be, like you said, you, you, you already said that they're going to run it out in the second half. So it doesn't seem like you're too worried about them as a potential roadblock for Detroit. I'm very curious about that uh, Week 18 game at Green Bay because that, for for somehow we've gotten to the point where uh, Green Bay-Detroit may be a play-in game for the playoffs. Let's do it. Jackson, there's been a lot of rumblings about the New England Patriots. Uh, and a lot of them, a lot of them, are centered around the quarterback position. I'd like to put my take out there. Uh, this isn't Mac Jones's fault. Mac Jones is a salvageable prospect, and if you give him another chance under whatever, what like Bill O'Brien, die off the street, whatever. If you give him another chance under a new offensive system, Mac Jones can lead you to a playoff game. I recognize that there's not like a high ceiling. Uh, with Jones, I, I am very readily aware of that. But this is a player that, among all rookies since 1981, uh, in what we call the DVOA era, because that's how far back we've uh, projected DVOA, of all rookie quarterbacks since 1981, Jones finished 10th in DYAR, 11th in DVOA, 7th in total passing yards, second in completion percentage, and ninth in passing touchdowns his rookie season. Now, some of that is overly projected by just era, just passing more. But that's still just a genuinely – like, that DVOA and DYAR especially are really impressive numbers to have put up. This year, Jones, obviously, has fallen off a cliff. Uh, lower completion percentage. Few, way fewer passing yards. He almost has a third of the touchdowns. Uh, his uh, touchdown percentage has actually dropped by half. Uh, and his interception rate is only slightly below where it was last season. Uh, he's gotten 100 less first downs. Like He's averaging you know about a half yard fewer per attempt. He's almost a half yard fewer per completion as well. It's like, you know. My argument is is that like the entire Patriots offense has been uh, kind of mismanaged. Uh, like Kendrick Bourne, for example, led all receivers last year in both receiving DVOA and rushing DVOA, and has barely gotten touches this season on a consistent basis. Johnny Smith has had flashes of genuine production and is yet to be used outside of a blocking tight end. Uh, Hunter Henry has like consistently underperformed whenever he's on the field, yet he keeps getting opportunities. Uh, there are certain capacities where like Nelson Aguilar, I think gets best used on routes and not just like as a pure burner. I don't know why this team isn't going to like Tyquan Thornton earlier. So also offensive line injuries where I think I could really get, you know, bumped up there, but just the pure conservative play in an offense run by Matt Patricia in a run heavy offense. Mac Jones's poor play this season, uh, it, I just don't think is is his fault. And I think, like the cerebral quarterback that Mac Jones is, and the rookie, like the the actual examples that we got as a rookie, are way 
better than what he's showing right now. I know people are calling for his head. And I even just said he has a low ceiling. Like, there are guys like Mike Reese who have seen him throw in preseason, in warm-ups, where Matt Jones can consistently throw 50 to 60 yards downfield if he wants to, and not like a big crow hop step in, like can really get a ball down there. He's missing a bit of zip, but I think it's like not much coaching you need. Like he's very, it's, it's, he's in that tier of Garoppolo Cousins quarterback. And we've seen those guys can get you to a playoff game. Yeah, I want to see it next year. Because I don't think you can move off him just yet, even as as some people have tried to make the case that they should. I just think that this year is such a wash that you have to know if it's still in there with somebody who actually coaches offense uh, driving the bus for him. But what I do worry about is it seems like as of late, the mannerisms have just become like, why do I have to do this? Uh, and I worry about like, I, I think it is a real thing that like a bad coach or a bad system can break somebody. And I think Mac Jones showed in that Raiders game that he is broken right now. Uh, 13 of 31 passing for 112 yards is like a, it's a WTF stat line. So it's not that I don't think he can be salvaged or that he can't be put back together and turned into a successful quarterback, but I think it's going to be harder to do that now because like he's been so hit with setbacks and had games that have like so worn on him that mentally it's tough to like produce and become a winning quarterback uh, once you've like kind of seen what that ultimate low feels like. So I'm just a little bit worried about that. But at the same time, like I, I completely agree that you have to give him a chance with an actual real offensive coordinator in place. I just, I just, I get what you're saying. I don't think he's totally broken, and I think there's more in there. That's all. I, there's I, more I, in there, but that was like that was a warning sign. That game, that was not a game that, that, that like that's a stat line that makes you worry that maybe you can't fix the guy. So I, I hope they can. I think they still maybe can, but that was that was a big downturn. Ending on a relatively ominous note. That'll do it for us at The Takeaway. Want to thank you as always for listening. I highly recommend you check out each and every one of our sources down in the description below because that's how this whole thing keeps going. They make the takes. We break down the takes. You listen to the takes. It's a beautiful cycle of takes. Before we get out of here, Gotta thank our friends over at Underdog Fantasy. Did your season-long fantasy teams miss the playoffs? Mine did. Fear not. Play on Underdog Fantasy with us and double your first deposit up to $100 with promo code OUTSIDERS. Play Underdog's Battle Royale, a fast six-round weekly fantasy football draft with easier chances to win than traditional fantasy sports sites. You can even win $50,000 if you grab first place. Or you can try their pick'em game where you can easily Pick a player's chances to go higher or lower than their projected stat lines, even in states where traditional prop betting currently isn't available. Underdog is the fastest growing fantasy site around. Join the fun over at underdogfantasy.com or download the underdog in the app store and use promo code outsiders now to double your first deposit up to $100. Don't forget to sign up for FO plus at footballoutsiders.com slash subscribe. You can join us in the FO Discord for in-game conversation for every game. 
this NFL season. Jackson, thank you as always for co-hosting this show with me. For Jackson, I'm Kale. We'll see you next week.